you look, I have a really important question for you. Oh, yeah. Shoot. So who would you rather work for, Michael Scott or Leslie Nope? Oh, my God. Ooh. Oh, that's easy. So I'd rather work for Leslie Nope. But, oh, Jeannie, Leslie's not the boss. Ron mm. is. I see how you tried to trick me there. Good catch. Yes. <laughs> Leslie just does all the work. Ron yeah. Swanson. Ron Swanson is the actual boss. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. Mm, he doesn't. Yeah. Okay, so back to your question. If we're talking Ron versus Michael, yes. they both seem like terrible bosses. <laughs> Michael, oh gosh, Michael. So Michael be really hard to not get tired of. Yeah. Like he'd talk about me adding an urban vibe to the office. He'd be like, diversity hire all day. He'd be like He would literally <laughs> call you the urban vibe. Oh yeah, my God. Yeah. He'd be like, one, two, three, she's a woman. A brown woman <laughs> and a mother. What? Um, he would also use every interaction as like a and a for all things black. And eventually I'd be so exhausted I would just have to quit. God, I would have to quit. Or yeah. I'd just have to stop coming to work because I feel so bothered all the time. Like you would just ghost. Yeah. He'd treat me so other. Yeah. It'd be ridiculous. Mm. And then Ron, now Ron Swanson on the other hand, he wouldn't know if I was even there for like the first six weeks. <laughs> and he wouldn't care that I like start like a workshop to undo bias in the park or yeah. maybe another one to prepare for climate change or the big burn, as I'm thinking about calling it. You just um, really want a catchy name for climate change, don't so you? So bad. <laughs> I want people to start like throwing it out there like, the big burn is coming. I don't I'm know. sorry, but we have something more important at hand, and that's do you want to work for Ron Swanson or not? So focus. Yeah. So I wouldn't feel valued on the team of Ron. Like I, I really wouldn't feel valued on Ron's team. Yeah, like, yeah. That's for sure. Like He'd never ask me about me or my goals or you know, end up promoting me based on those things. Mm. Yeah. This feels like a good opportunity to trot out a sad fact. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So uh, I looked at this one poll, and it found that more than 50% of workers quit their jobs because of bad bosses. Mm. Another poll I looked at said it's more like 75% of employees quit because of bad bosses. Damn. 75%. Mm-hmm. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if this many employees... Real life employees, not yeah. like employees on a TV show. But like if this many real life employees are quitting their jobs because of bad bosses, I kind of want to know how all those bad bosses got those jobs in the first place. These are lots of IRL Ron Swanson's and Michael Scott's we're talking about here. Yeah. And we know fixing this isn't as simple as just putting more women in leadership. Yeah. I mean, Leslie was a pretty good leader, but Jan on the office, not at all. Good point. Right. Yeah. So... Obviously, we are talking about incompetent bosses on this episode. Mm-hmm, we are, but it's going to be fun. Yeah? Mostly. Yeah. This is BTSW. Battle tactics for your sexist workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bino. I'm Jeannie Yandel. So we're clearly pretty good at identifying bad bosses on TV shows, but Mm -hmm. we're about to talk to the person who literally wrote the book on real life bad leadership. In that book, he points out incompetent leaders are everywhere. Look out. I I had to put together a very quick acknowledgement section last minute for my book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I thank family and friends and the usual, my editor, etc. But the last sentence of that section, which is at the end of the book, says, and thank you, Um, especially to all you incompetent men who will continue to succeed and be the main sales force that I have. This is Tomas Chamorro Primusic. 
He's a professor of business psychology at Columbia University. And Jeannie, he's actually written more than one book on bad leaders. So he's the author of Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And he's the author of The Talent Delusion. Mm. And Tomas tries to figure out how to clearly evaluate bosses on whether they're doing a good job. But he also looks at what personality traits and qualities we all expect leaders to have to see if those traits and qualities support successful leadership. So let's start simple. What makes a bad leader, Tomas? So the first and most important quality they have is that they have a negative effect or impact on their teams, subordinates, or organizations. So typically, we call a boss or a leader incompetent or bad when they cause low levels of engagement, morale, trust, productivity, performance, revenues. You know, you measure whatever KPI you're measuring, it's bad because of them. And equally, these individuals tend to cause high levels of anxiety, burnout, stress. And they actually drive people to not just quit their jobs, but also their organizations. And sometimes traditional employment altogether, most of the people who are freelance and self-employed actually have been traumatized by their previous managers. And as for the traits that these people have, they come in many different shapes and forms, but typically they are overly emotional, volatile, overconfident. They have deficits around emotional intelligence and people skills. Oh, my gosh. Nobody's in the room with us, but our eyes are huge right now. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I've definitely worked for this person before. And like, <laughs> when you started it, I was like, this is getting realer and realer. <gasps> oh, my gosh. The, thing, the impact it had on me. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So <laughs> in a workplace, what do we expect leaders to do? Like, what's the actual job if, you know, if those are all the things that we're getting from bad leaders? Yeah, in an ideal world, you know, leaders would, turn a group of individuals into a high-performing team. They would help people work with each other, uh, set aside at least uh, for a short moment in time their individualistic tendencies and wishes to be part of a cohesive unit and create a synergy that helps them achieve something they couldn't achieve uh, independently or by themselves. So that means motivating people, empowering them, nurturing them, giving them feedback that helps them regulate their behaviors and their performance and really elevate the performance that individuals would display if they're working alone. You can see this very clearly in professional sports teams, right? When you have a manager that comes and is better than the previous manager, suddenly the same group of individuals click, yeah. they work together well, and they achieve results. This same logic can be applied to the world of business or any organizations. Oh. Mm-hmm. So we talked about what qualities uh, make for bad leaders. What qualities do we tend to think of and talk about as leadership qualities? Like collectively, how have we decided we want our leaders to act Yeah, and this is a really interesting question because, you know, if I told you what the main universal qualities of good leadership are, um, you probably won't be surprised, right? I mean, on average, the science suggests that leaders are better when they're more competent, when they have more integrity, when they have more people skills, and when they're more humble, which means that they are self-aware and they can be coachable. Um, Everybody agrees with this, but then when people choose leaders either to run their countries or when HR professionals or leaders in companies appoint leaders to come and work there, they are seduced by three main qualities that are not just irrelevant, but often negatively correlated with leadership effectiveness, which are confidence, charisma, and narcissism. Mm. So we're seduced by leaders who are 
confident rather than competent, charismatic rather than honest or with integrity, and uh, narcissistic rather than humble. Ugh. You made me think of The Office when they're interviewing everybody <laughs> yes, after Michael leaves. Well, yes, yeah, you know, oh. uh, absolutely. And, I, you know, I've always preferred the British version because I was living in the UK at mm. the time and uh, <laughs> is the original one. But I also enjoy the American. And the success of that show is simply based on the fact that everybody has experience such bosses or know somebody who has so it's almost like hyper realistic and uh, yeah. almost too true to be funny but at the same time I think we can sympathize with them because they are the insecure narcissist type you know they are trying to think more highly of themselves than they actually can and desperately looking for approval and validation and because they are not our bosses but there's the cathartic element of watching fiction we actually find it funny oh. right right Right. That fiction makes it funny. Yes. Okay. so how did we get to this point? I mean, why do we think that these qualities that you just talked about make for good leaders? It's like it's like we're all deluded. How did we get here? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worse than that because we have to get to the stage where we actually understand that we are getting it wrong and most people aren't there yet. But Hmm. so there's maybe two main reasons. One that is almost justifiable, if you think, which is the fact that for 99% of our relatively short evolutionary history, you know, 200,000 years or so, we tended to live always with the same people. We spent all our lives with five or 10 people whom we knew really, really well. And when it came to making decisions as to who should lead or who should provide some sense of direction to the group, um, you were mostly focused on physical qualities like strengths or pace or courage, you know, which are easily observed. Yeah. Fast forward in time to the year 2000 or so when leadership is mostly a function of abstract uh, qualities like um, learning ability, critical thinking, curiosity, or, you know, the ability to put together a digital transformation. It's very abstract. (laughs) And the reality is that you can no longer observe people in short-term interactions and point at them and say, yep, this person is a good leader, this person is not. So we still have this tendency to want to determine whether somebody should rule or be in charge after, um, you know, merely minutes of interaction, interacting with people. And that's no longer the case. So although we need science and data and evidence to make these decisions, we're still drawn towards our intuition. Uh, a clear example is that most people decide on whom to vote for based on watching a 20-minute televised uh, debate, you know, right. between presidential uh, candidates. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how many live fact-checking sites or uh, feeds there are on Twitter because evidence is irrelevant. We like this person or not, and that's it. You know, So we, we fantasize with this idea that we can make split-second evaluations on whether somebody should be a leader or not when the reality is much more complex. That's one. The second one is that the incentives that are in place um, to reward individuals to get to the top are often incompatible with the incentives that we should put in place to motivate people to actually care about their teams. Uh, Leaving aside the world of professional sports or athleticism, you know, CEOs get paid a lot of money to, in essence, 
manipulate their stock price in the short term or drive short term results, mm. uh, people get motivated to climb up the organizational ladder by managing up when in fact leadership should be about managing down. Yes. And when you take credit for other people's achievements and blame others for your mistakes and spend most of your time politicking and being Machiavellian, you know, think about house of cards kind of thing, yeah. you get promoted. Whereas the poor people who are actually doing the job and contributing to the organization get overlooked or dismissed. And even when we try to give advice to women, we're blaming them for not leaning in, as if leaning in <laughs> was actually an essential ingredient of being a leader. It should be the opposite. If you're doing your work and you're not focused on self-promoting, I should consider you more than the people who are raising their hand all the time saying, me, 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 me. Ooh. Right, right. So we've actually heard from a lot of our listeners that there are enough women in leadership. You know, does that solve the issue per se? Or I, I shouldn't say from our listeners. We've heard from like people all around. They're just like, you guys got to get more women in office and maybe that'll be the end of these issues. Yes. Guests have said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you ask me, I would also want to have more women in leadership. That would be my personal preference. And I also think it would be a sign of progress in the realm of fairness and social justice. But the reality is that for-profit organizations are not in the world to make the world a better place or reduce inequalities, even if they have to pretend that that's the case to improve their reputation. So I think you're more likely to persuade leaders that they should appoint more women if you can demonstrate a business case and a return on investment. Actually, if you hire the people with the most talent for leadership, people with better people skills, more humility, more integrity, more self-awareness, more uh, integrity and coachability, you would not only end up with more women in charge, mm -hmm. you would actually end up with more women than men in charge. And you would need quotas for men to get to the top. Ooh. By the way, nobody ever discusses the invisible quotas that are in place right now for all these incompetent men who managed to race to the top when they shouldn't. Right. Wait, what do you mean invisible quotas? Well, because nobody, no company organization would tell you, hey, 70% of our leadership roles must go to incompetent men. But actually, <laughs> if you look at the men or the people that are leading their organization and are at the top, 70% of them are incompetent men. Damn. Wow. How do these people keep their jobs? Like, why do they stay in yeah. positions of leadership? I want to believe yeah, that people get fired, but it sounds like that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and this is this is one of the marvelous paradoxes of living in our complex kind of uh, age, you know, which is that, you know, on the one hand, as our ability to judge people, including their talents, has improved over time, our ability to deceive others has improved in turn. It's almost like a never-ending cat-and-mouse game, right? So in a world where we still make decisions based on interviews or whether we have a meet, a chat with someone and it feels like they're a good culture fit, etc., it's inevitable that some people who maybe because they are narcissistic and charismatic are going to be able to deceive decision makers, you know? So the very things that we should ignore when we are evaluating leadership potential are the very things that we love to pay attention to. For example, if somebody is male or female, attractive or unattractive, 
um, part of our tribe or our group, uh, rich or poor. You know, yeah. so we can pretend that we want to ignore these things and we can undergo unconscious bias training. But at the end of the day, unless you remove this information from people's um, decision making kind of uh, criteria, it's always going to be a problem. And then the second issue, I think, is the elephant in the room is that for most of the jobs that really matter, that are really well compensated and that we all care about, you know, for skilled professions and jobs that are considered part of the knowledge economy, there are very imperfect measures of performance. Hmm. Walk into any organization today and ask people, including their HR professionals, who are your most valuable employees or your most valuable leaders and tell me why, and they won't be able to deliver an answer. They will tell you whom they liked and who huh. they think uh, was uh, funny or entertaining. Hmm. So I'm thinking about being in this workplace now where like everybody around me has the wrong, you know, is is so excited about the wrong dude and the wrong dude's in charge of me. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so like who's actually doing the real work of leadership then? You know, and this is a great question. It's often not the people who are formally appointed to positions of power. You know, there's um, uh, recently people have started talking more about peer leadership. So the effects or the influence that you can uh, display over your teammates in a in a group to fill in for those gaps or blanks that incompetent managers or leaders leave there's even uh, some evidence that you can be a good informal um, upward leader by influencing your boss to do the right things even when they are inept you know, so mm -hmm. someone is always exercising some level of influence over others. Leadership from a psychological perspective is a resource for the team. Even if you throw five or ten people in a room and ask them to do something and you don't appoint anybody to be in charge, after five minutes, somebody will emerge as the person who provides direction to that group and coordinates human action. So I think the big challenge for organizations today is to ensure that those who are in a formal position of power and rise to the top are actually exercising that psychological function. And if not, they should change it and they should pay attention to the people who are actually driving progress in the organization. So one of your books is called The Talent Delusion, and I feel like we've talked about that piece of it already, but then you have another book called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Why is there a gender component to this? Most leaders are A, man, and B, not very good, you know? <laughs> and by, the, by this, I'm not saying that there aren't any men who could be great leaders. There are many men who are great leaders. But actually, most of the men who display the qualities that we need in a leader today, things like EQ, altruism, self-awareness, and humility, are overlooked precisely because they actually display these more feminine or traditionally feminine features of leadership. So, you know, the book was born as an alternative to Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in argument. Yeah. I felt it, it's, it's, it's not right to point the finger at women and, and accuse them of essentially not behave more like incompetent men, when in mm -hmm. fact the solution to our problems is not asking women to emulate men, but fixing ourselves and not falling for people, usually men, who lean in when they actually don't have the talents to back it up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
But like, I mean, I'm sure you've had a lot of people since like you've, you've been presenting this idea who say, but I've worked for women and they're terrible. Correct. Yes. And, you know, I actually like it when they say that because it's an opportunity to remind them that those women succeeded within the same system and by mm. playing the same game and they're a product of the same rigged, flawed game or rules of the game that we have in place. Right. Um, you know, so they had to probably out male males in masculinity. They had to be more kick-ass, more assertive, more mm. overconfident, and more intimidating than their male bosses. Mm. And surprise, surprise, when they get there, um, they're not just quite inept or problematic, but they're also a disservice for all the women and the men who actually could be better leaders because they have a more feminine style. I mean... I do want to ask a little bit more about charisma, though. I mean, why yeah. why is it problematic that we gravitate towards charisma? In and of itself, yeah. it doesn't seem like charisma is a bad thing. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You know, I mean, you know, I'm I'm going to start with like a really shocking and uh, um, distasteful um, comparison, but I think it is important because it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make, which is that. Um, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, and pick your worst brutal dictator in history would surely have been a lot less um, harmful to the world if they had lacked charisma. Hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So charisma is an amplifier. If you're a competent person with the right integrity, with the right goals, and uh, you mean well and you have talent... Oh, yeah, I want you to be charismatic because mm-hmm. charisma will help you influence others and persuade others and bring people along. Yeah. But if you're a crook or inept or immoral, please be boring and don't be charismatic <laughs> so that people ignore you, you know? So um, you asked the question in exactly, you worded it in precisely the right way, way which is that, why is it problematic to focus so much on charisma? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because, well, you know, if you think that style matters more than substance or all style and no substance is better than a lot of substance and no style, uh, you're going to end up having problems. You know, yeah. you're going to end up having problems. So charisma will amplify not just the competence, but also the morality that leaders have. And it will help people get away with murder um, when they lack integrity and when they lack competence, precisely because they can entertain us. Look, I mean, if you had to pick a heart surgeon or a person to fly your plane or a dentist to perform your root canal, would you rather take somebody who is funny, charismatic, and with a great sense of humor but doesn't have a clue on how to do? Or do you want the competent person that knows how to perform heart surgery, a root canal, and fly a plane? And the same logic should be applied to leaders. It shouldn't be like, ah, you know, I've spent two minutes watching a YouTube clip of this person and ah, I love them. I'm going to vote for them. Wow. So so how do we actually figure out if someone has a potential to be a good leader? So, you know, in the world of organizations, the responsibility falls primarily on HR and they need to have the ability to distrust, well, first, the humility and self-criticism to distrust their instincts, focus on the right traits. So 
competence, integrity, and humility, and use science-based tools, things like psychometric assessments or analytics mm -hmm. or real evidence or data on the person's past performance. If the question is how can we get voters to do this is a lot harder because, you know, most of us are too busy watching what our neighbor's cat had for breakfast on Facebook <laughs> and we don't have time to actually watch the live feeds of uh, fact-checking, you know, tweets or debates and we don't care, you know. So, um, and the reality is that we are not punished enough for doing so because mm -hmm. probably even when we make bad choices, uh, the effects of those choices may take 15, 20 or 30 years to be realized, you huh. know, but it matters when you look at it from a, a long-term perspective. And again, to use Argentina, my country of origin, as, in, as an example, in 100 or 150 years, it went from being in the top 10 to being in the top 100 and it's still declining. And the only reason for that is we keep on choosing these despotic, charismatic, charming, incompetent people to run the country. So when people are interviewing a potential leader, if they're trying to ask just questions, what are some yeah. questions that should be asked? And so this is the issue, right? That it's, it's not about putting more weight on the interview or picking kind of a, you know, we tend to look for a silver bullet and said, what is the killer question? And it was a really interesting study that came out recently on how the only thing you can tell when companies ask questions like the ones you hear in Silicon Valley, you know, you have somebody and you ask them how many tennis balls could fit in a Boeing 747 <laughs> or how long would it take to cycle to Mars? The only thing you can tell <laughs> about people who ask those questions is that they're a little bit sadistic and mm. uh, antisocial. It says nothing about the interviewer. No. So look, there are, there are psychometric tests that have been validated for five or six decades that mm. have maybe a hundred questions that if combined can tell you, can predict whether somebody will be uh, more or less ethical, more or less uh, socially skilled, more or less curious and so forth. So that's one element. Another is one, one those, as I said. Is one of those questions your sign? Your astrological uh, well, sign? Well, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, because people love things like the Myers-Briggs, the MBTI, and they ask you, oh, I'm an INTJ. Would you hire somebody with this program? And actually, uh, studies suggest that asking somebody whether they're a Virgo or a Scorpio is more predictive <gasps> of some of these bad tools that are out there. Oh. But, you know, it wouldn't stand up in court. You wouldn't be able to tell somebody in, you know, in, in a discrimination kind of lawsuit or something, no, I really needed a Scorpio for this uh, <laughs> <laughs> role. No, and I couldn't have a Libra. I mean, it's nice, but that's like for your family and friends. So, look... <laughs> Proper science-based assessments, looking at past 360 data, so how the leaders or managers have been rated by their previous subordinates or followers. This is why I think companies like Glassdoor, where you can go sort of like a trip advisor of leaders, you can see how they are rated by their teams, are mm -hmm. really important. In academia, we had rate my professor for some time, and it's mm. actually really, really important. And then you have to look at past performance, much like when um, somebody in the arts or media is looking at the portfolio of the individual, you can look at portfolio-like indicators of whether somebody has demonstrated people skills, integrity, and uh, capability or competence in the past. Mm -hmm. So focus on those things and even if, imagine a world in which you have to completely shut off the interview and you can make decisions based on the interview. What would you take in exchange or instead? 
Oh, I love thinking about that. That's really interesting. I mean, so it sounds like some of these psychometric tests you're talking about, looking at past performance, looking at how uh, their coworkers and subordinates have rated them in the past. Those are some ways to do it. But I mean, what else should companies and organizations be doing to focus on Mm -hmm. identifying and elevating actual leaders? Yeah, I think one one um, and I, I I never really like this idea of kind of where where's the low hanging fruit, you know. But I think one <laughs> important change that could be made is actually focus less on how well the person or the candidate has performed as an individual contributor and more. Uh, on this kind of more abstract and intangible side of potential. For example, imagine that I have to decide between somebody who has been a top performer as a software developer or engineer and really delivered great code, works fast, and uh, but is still an independent contributor. But in a personality assessment shows that they're not very good on the people management side mm-hmm. of things and they're not very curious or they can't think strategically. Mm. And on the other hand, I have somebody who was pretty mediocre and didn't deliver results as an individual <laughs> contributor. But if I look at their profile, it tells you that, wow, you know, they have emotional intelligence, curiosity, critical thinking. Companies should start picking the second type of person more than the first. And this doesn't happen. It happens in sports again. We know that mm. some of the best coaches and managers of teams were mediocre individual contributors or wow. bad individual athletes and vice versa. Mostly the top individual athletes don't become great coaches. I doubt, for example, that LeBron James will become a Phil Jackson-like coach. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm listening to this and I'm like, yo... I feel like you described me. Tomas like got me like a like, nail on the head. But I'm I don't want my space to keep getting worse. <laughs> you know, I'm already a bad leader and I just don't want to keep this up. Is there anything that I can do to like become a better leader? Yeah, so you know, first of all, if you're listening as a leader, as a manager, and you realize that some of the things we described, the bad things we described might be about you, congratulations because you're already <laughs> self aware and that by <laughs> default probably makes you more competent than incompetent, mm. you know? And and I rarely tell this story, but the six years that passed between my writing the HBR article on why so many incompetent men become leaders and the book coming out, it took so long because the publisher procrastinated that how are they going to possibly publish a book with this title when 70% of their readers are male executives. I kept on telling them, don't worry, they won't realize it's about them. It requires (laughs) self-awareness to realize it might be. So if you think it's about you, and sometimes men write to me and said, oh, how can I tell if I'm an incompetent man? Mm. If you're asking that question, you probably aren't because you're asking that question and you have self-criticism. Having said that, you know, once you identify that you might have these characteristics, I mean, there's so much you can do to get better. Identify mm-hmm. the behaviors that are emblematic of overconfident. Uh, try to be more altruistic. In essence, you know, develop some people skills and develop a true range of behaviors that are emblematic of moral, ethical likability. In a way, they can just read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and apply it in a good way, you know, without using it to take advantage of others, because that's all we need. We need a world in which most leaders are nice and caring and 
trusting. Yeah. Or oh. trustworthy more than trusting. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so and so if somebody sent you this episode, you know, and you just got to that part, that that might have been why they sent it. Right. <laughs> yes, you know, as a, uh, I have many, many uh, stories of people, usually women, who, um, you know, brought me the book to sign and they got two copies, one for themselves and one for their boss. And they then told me, I don't know how to give it to them. And I mm. said, look, there's always Secret Santa, right? Yeah. You can always leave it there and say, from an anonymous admirer. Uh, at the same time, you know, if they have the courage or the willingness to give it to their boss, there's probably hope, you know, it probably yeah. means that their manager, their boss can actually, either they have a sense of humor, which is always a good thing, or they have self-awareness and they understand where that is coming from. You know, one of the simplest uh, indicators of whether an organization has a good culture um, is we ask this question sometimes in employee engagement service, climate service, we ask employees, do you feel that you can provide your direct line manager with critical feedback on their performance? In essence, give them negative feedback and criticize them. Mm-hmm. And only about 10% of people say yes. Five, 50% of those are probably about to get fired because if they do, it's not going to work out. Yeah. But there are some bosses, some managers that genuinely invite their subordinates to critique them and to provide them with negative feedback and those are the best type of leaders mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. so that's so something much. you can put in practice right now if you're a manager invite your team your subordinates to provide you with honest critical feedback on your performance don't tell them this was amazing wasn't it but ask them <laughs> what could I what could I have done better? Where do you think I made a mistake? I mean, yeah. giving feedback is an art, but receiving it is probably an even more difficult art to master. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so good. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's interesting. All I was gonna say is I'm a defensive person, and but when I open up the conversation to hear feedback and I just like make it a point to hear it versus uh, critique it, I do a much mm-hmm. better job of um, you know morphing into the better person I'm trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, nobody wants to be told that they are not good at something or that the performance wasn't as good as they thought. Right. But that's way more helpful than to be told that you were amazing when in fact it's a lie or it's just BS. You know, it's helpful in the long run. You can only improve by identifying a gap between where you are and where you want to be. And that gap is only revealed or highlighted when you have people who are honest and competent around you who can actually give you negative feedback. Mm -hmm. Okay. We would keep you here for another hour if we could. Yeah. But well, no, this is, the, speaking of, you know, to end up with feedback, this is the part where you tell me you were amazing. This was <laughs> the were. best interview we yes, ever did. And I said, oh, stop it. I'm going to no, brush. No, no. <laughs> yes, yes. And we don't have any managers we want to listen to this. So <laughs> very good. We're hoping we know, Excellent. We, we're hoping we, we draw someone for Secret Santa is all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. very good. Dr. Tomas Chamorro, Pramusic, professor of business psychology at Columbia University, chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, Also author of many books, including Why Do So Many Men Become Incompetent Leaders and How to Fix It. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. So, Jeannie, how'd you feel coming out of that? Oh, I mean, it kind of blew my mind. Like, we... As a species, yeah, we are just bad at picking leaders. No, like, for real. Like we're just bad at it. <laughs> so bad. Also, we're really bad about climate change. Oh man, <laughs> what are you calling it now? <laughs> the sizzle. There it is. Okay. So, 
But with leadership, I mean, we're continually drawn to charisma, confidence, and decisiveness, even when those qualities do not lead to good leadership outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here a lot more certain that, one, we have a terrible system for choosing presidential candidates. I'm actually really nervous about the next election now. We should be. But also, two... Phil Jackson was a really good basketball coach. I mean, I can't argue with that. I mean, 11 championships. Yeah. And I'm over here still thinking about Tomas's point about how lean in was fundamentally flawed. Yes. That the goal shouldn't be for women to make themselves into versions of the toxic, charismatic leaders that we all keep picking. Totally. Yeah. That really grabbed me, too. It's kind of like, why are we talking about having more women leaders if those leaders feel like they have to model themselves (laughs) after Bad men leaders. No, seriously. And I plan to rewatch Parks and Rec. Yeah. And The Office, actually, to see Jan this time. Because mm. I'm going to be watching, you know, the bosses mainly. And I want to learn how not to be a bad boss from Ron, Michael, or Jan. At totally. That I mm. really like that. I mean, I don't I don't actually need an excuse to rewatch those shows, but yeah. this is a really good reason to rewatch them. Seriously. Yeah. And so here's the rest of my plan, actually. I plan to keep pulling my load in this uphill fight against sexism. Jeannie, will you pull yours? That's what she said. What? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was thinking about The Office. I mean, yes. Hell yes, I will. I got to call Toby about this. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) BTSW is a production of KUOW in Seattle. Our senior producer is Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. She's got all the names. Yay. Special thanks to Bridget Anderson, our partner marketing manager. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks to Michaela Kiner and Ruchika Tulshian, who have been advising us this season. This podcast was inspired by the book, Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. Our graphics designer is Tio Popescu. I'm Jeannie Yandel. I'm Eula Scott Bino. Keep up the good fight. See you soon. <laughs> and a special, special thanks to all the incompetent men who make this podcast possible. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary.